are been going through the book of Galatians. We there for a number of books now. We're now in chapter five and verses sixteen to twenty-six that we're looking at um, today. But let's just pray first and just commit it to God. Father, we thank you for another opportunity you know, to come around your word. Father, we pray as we just begin to explore and um, that Lord, you would speak to us through your spirit, we ask. Lord, we need to hear from you. But we know that without hearing your voice, without hearing your direction, Lord, we tend to end up in some ridiculous places. So, Father, we pray, speak to us, that we may walk according to your ways, according to your path, and in step with your spirit, we ask. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we heard we heard last week that God wants us to live in freedom. And the biggest challenge to freedom actually is not from the outside, but from within. And so we need to be set free from ourselves and the, the tyranny that, that actually of our sinful nature. Unfortunately, many people try to solve this problem by laws and by threats and by a rule-based religion that's just rooted in fear. So they tell themselves, I must do good things or God will accept me. But what explains is that no amount of rule-keeping can change a person's basic sinful nature. The law on the outside will not make any difference. Only love on the inside will truly change you. In gospel Christianity, the motivation is a dynamic of love. God has lovingly accepted me so I'm free to do good out of love for him and for others. Now Paul spells out then just how we should grow in this character through this new dynamic, but also emphasize the need to have power within, the power that comes from the Holy Spirit of God. Let's just read a few verses. So we are Galatians 5, Think of verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever they want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Stop there for a moment. So there, there are two things at work within every Christian's life. There's the Holy Spirit and there's the sinful nature. And they are in total conflict to each other. So there's this great battle going on within. So in verse 16, Paul calls the sinful nature the flesh. In verse 18, he describes it as being under the law. But this actually helps us to understand how the sinful nature operates. So when we are under the law, our sinful nature will go out of its way to find a way of breaking it. It's worth making very clear that Paul is not saying that the human body is sinful, it's, it's neutral. So if the Holy Spirit controls the body, then we walk by the Spirit. But if the flesh, the sinful nature, controls the body, then we walk in the desires and the lusts of the flesh. The Spirit and the flesh have a very different appetites. So it's no wonder that it leads to such conflict all too often. So if the, if the body is not sinful, maybe the law is sinful. Well, Paul's not saying that either. 
turn to Romans chapter 7, verse 7, he says it very clearly. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. He carries on just in a different as the message version, puts it like this, verse 8 to 11. Don't you remember how it was? I do perfectly well. The law code started out as an excellent piece of work. What happened though was that sin found a way to revert the command into a temptation, making a piece of forbidden fruit out of it. The law code, instead of being used to guide me, was used to seduce me. Without all of the paraphernalia of the law code, sin looked pretty dull and lifeless, and I went along without paying much attention to it. But while sin got its hands on the law code and decked it out in all of its finery, I was fooled and fell for it. The very command that was supposed to guide me into life was cleverly used to trip me up, throwing me headlong into sin. And Paul is describing how even though the law is not itself sinful, it is twisted, it is distorted, it makes sin look attractive by our sinful nature, and it leads us into temptation and very often into sin. But then at other times, as we look at God's law, our sinful nature points out that we have actually done really well today, that we have kept the law, and we think pretty good about ourselves, and that leads to pride, it leads to self-righteousness, and this is a more subtle um, work of our sinful nature, but it's just as dangerous. Because what happens is we end up trying to fight sin in our own strength. And the result of doing this is we end up fighting one sin with another sin. So you take, for example, you want to try and beat jealousy. So what happens when most of us, what we do, we try hard, and we, we, we try with our own wills, in our own strength, by our own power, to beat jealousy. So we set up something like a boxing ring, and uh, we, we, we put a fight on. So in one corner, we put jealousy. In the other corner, we put self-righteousness. The problem is, regardless of who wins, sin wins every single time. It might be a great fight, it might be quite impressive, but at the end, sin wins. And this is a popular game. I've done it, many, 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 many of you have as well. But when you try to put sin to death, you put one sin against another sin, the problem is, sin wins, you lose. And Paul says, the solution is not to try and pit your will against the flesh, but to surrender yourselves to the will of the Holy Spirit. Which literally means, if you are willingly led by the Holy Spirit, then you are not under the law. Because the Holy Spirit writes God's word upon your heart so that you can desire to obey Him in love. Psalm 40, verse 8. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. And being led by the Spirit will set you free. 
enables you to joyfully repent over both the sinful law-breaking, but also the sinful law-keeping, and be really changed. And it's complete opposite to to yielding to the desires of the flesh. Of course, the Holy Spirit doesn't work in a vacuum and he uses the word of God, he uses prayer, he uses worship and the fellowship of other believers to build us up in Christ. And the Christian who spends time daily in the word and prayer and gains to the the leading of the Holy Spirit is going to enjoy freedom and the victory that is ours in and through Christ Jesus. But before we talk about that victory, we've got a few disturbing verses to read through first. That's okay. We're picking up again in verse 19. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fit of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, fractions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. This list in verse 19 to 21 is not particularly comfortable reading. It describes the true nature, however, of the human heart. And this list in Galatians is similar to other lists in different letters of the New Testament, and we, we can divide it into probably three categories. The first is sensual sins. Sexual sin comes from a filthy heart and mind, lustful appetites that can lead to places actually that sometimes lead to a place of maybe no shame at all. And it's easy for us to think that in our contemporary society, the sort of contemporary assault on the sanctity of sexual intimacy within marriage is, is sort of a new thing. It's not. It is as old as the human race itself. Jesus, having been gone more than 30 years, before even the church were announcing open sex as the legitimate Christian lifestyle. But listen, it is not okay for kids to experiment sexually. It's not okay for a couple to live together outside of marriage. It's not okay for a husband or wife to gratify their desires with whoever they please. As God's people, we are called to live in purity and holiness before God. Sensual sins need to be fought. The second group of sins that Paul mentions here is the superstitious sins. We are told repeatedly in the Old Testament that, that we are to worship God, we are to love people, and we are to do things. However, very often we use people, we worship things, and well, God is sort of left out of the picture altogether. In the New Testament, Jesus goes even further and tells us that whatever we worship, we serve. It's what we call idolatry. Now, we don't tend to use that word very often these days, but that doesn't mean that the problem has necessarily gone away. I'm sure there are very few of us that are tempted to perhaps carve little statues and then go out and worship them, but if I was to tell you that the definition of idolatry is the worship of anything else other than God, it could be food, family, Football, massive letter F. <laughs> this, this, this is much a problem today as it was by times. But there's also a much more blatant act of false worship witchcraft, 
sorcery and all occultic activities. It may, it may surprise you to hear that actually witchcraft literally means the use of drugs because it's a direct reference to the drugs that are being used within sorcery. But the point is this, that the use of any mind-controlling substances will lead a person open to demonic control. This is the work of the enemy. It is idolatry. It is strictly forbidden within Scripture. It is dangerous to mess with in any way. But there's a third group of, of sins. The social sins. These are the sins that most of society and perhaps many churches just simply overlook. Jerry Bridges calls them in one of his books as the respectable sins. Hatred, outbursts of anger, self-seeking ambition, jealousy, envy, the holding on to grudges. Of course, that list is not exhaustive and we could go on, but we must not ignore these. We must never allow them to fester within our hearts. These are just as dangerous as the rest of what we've mentioned. In fact, Paul makes the rather shocking statement over all of these sins, whether it be the respectable ones or the other ones. He says that the person who practices these sins shall not enter or inherit the kingdom of God. What's he mean? I think it's fair to say that Paul is not talking about the act of sin, but the habit of sin, but nonetheless, God's word is very clear. So even though a Christian is under grace and not under the law, it is still no excuse to carry on sinning. Instead, grace is an encouragement to live in obedience. Paul has already clearly said that you cannot inherit the kingdom of God by doing a work-based righteousness. Jesus Christ is the door. And that door is opened by faith. Yet here Paul seems to be saying that by doing these things you can bar yourself from God's kingdom. So is he contradicting himself? Well, no. Paul's whole point is that if you do such things, you're showing yourself to be without the transforming gift of grace. You don't know, you don't follow Jesus. Why would you do these things if you truly loved the Lord Jesus Christ after all he's done for us? Those who are slaves to such passions show that they are not true born sons of the king. They are not heirs of his kingdom. So Paul instead would call them to faith, call them to repentance, call them to be, for their lives to be changed through Jesus Christ. But Paul's statement should make us start to think. Because this is not a game any more than, than war is a game. I think you'd agree with me that it would be heartless for our armed forces to deploy troops as if war was just a bit of a game. Without any thought of the sons, the husbands, the fathers who would get maimed and killed. But how much more then should we regard a pastor or a teacher as heartless who does not pause to think about the eternal life and death that is at stake in preaching and teaching? It is heartless to give the impression that in matters of doctrine, of faith, of obedience to God's word, that we are just playing a bit of a game. He preaches not simply a variety of psychotherapy, nor is Christian doctrine just another means of perhaps better mental health or social awareness or, or the power of puzzle thinking. But more and more people view preaching and doctrine and church in this way because because they, they don't want to challenge people over their sinful lifestyles or, or warn people about the consequences of rejecting Jesus. But it is heartless. 
because it treats life as though it was just a game. But in fact, eternal joy in the kingdom of God and eternal misery in hell is at stake. Instead, this should weigh heavy on our hearts. It should, it should make us restless in prayer. With loving concern, we need to be warning people and offering hope and truth and saviour. <coughs> but after all these, these warnings, Paul then describes a better way. Verse 22 23, very well known. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. Against such things there is no law. We've already said that it's impossible to fight sin in our own strength because we end up, well, we end up fighting one sin against another sin and we lose every single time. So our only hope is the grace of the Spirit of God in our lives. So self-effort and works, no matter how good they are, are not going to produce fruit. Just like the machine in the factory works and just churns out a product, but it's impossible for it to actually manufacture fruit. Because fruit has to be grown from a living thing. In the case of the believer, it is life in the Spirit. And these ninefold fruits of the Spirit are characteristic of what God wants to see within your life. <coughs> Paul begins with love. Perhaps because all of the other fruits come from the outgrowth of love. So when a person lives in the sphere of love, they will experience joy and an inward sufficiency that that's not affected by outward circumstances. Love and joy together produce peace. And these three qualities, love, joy and peace, expressed to the Godward aspect of the Christian life. The next three express perhaps a more human side, long-suffering, the ability to endure, the courage to keep going without quitting, gentleness, goodness, See, the Christian who is long-suffering will not avenge themselves. They will not hold grudges or wish difficulties on anyone who just doesn't agree with them. They will be kind and gentle, even with the most offensive people. They will want to sow goodness when other people want to sow evil. But again, human nature cannot do this. Only the Holy Spirit can. The final qualities are more of ourselves. Faith, faithfulness, dependability, meekness. Meekness is the right use of power and authority, power under control. See, meekness is very often thought about thought as weakness. It's not. In fact, meekness is a real strength because the meek Christian doesn't throw their weight around. They don't have to. And then finally, self-control. We need to grow, we need to nurture these qualities through the Holy Spirit within our lives. It's very possible that the flesh can actually contradict some of these fruits of the Spirit, but they will never produce genuine fruits. And the way to spot the real from the fake, when the Spirit produces fruit, God gets the glory, and the Christian is not aware so much of the spirituality, but when the flesh is at work, 
For the person is inwardly proud. They want everybody to notice it's all about them. And the work of the Spirit will always make us more like Christ for His glory, not for the praise of man. And then Paul turns to the victory that is ours through Christ. Verse 24 and 25. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Augustus Tocqueville wrote that great hymn, Rock of Ages, with these words in it. Let the water and the blood from thy raven sides explode. Theme of sin, the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. Double cure that he speaks about here is of God's cleansing us from sin's guilt through the death of his son. But you've got to understand this, that his forgiveness is not because he, God wants to be lenient with us. He forgives us because his justice has been satisfied. So the forgiveness for your sins is just as rock solid as the historic reality of Christ's death. However, Tommy is him and speaks not only of the cleansing from sin's guilt, but also of freedom from its power. In other words, we have victory through Jesus Christ. Which is why Paul says that the believer needs to put the flesh with all of its capabilities to produce some horrific sins to death. Sinful nature needs to be crucified. Over in Romans chapter 6, Paul explains further. He says that Christ not only died for me, but I died with Christ. So Christ died for me to remove the penalty of my sin, but I died with Christ to break sin's power. But notice, he does not tell us to crucify ourselves. For this is impossible. He tells us that the flesh has already been crucified. That is our position before Christ and in Christ. It is our responsibility to believe this, to act on it by feeding ourselves on the truth of God's word, but also by not making any provision for the flesh by feeding it with things that it enjoys. But don't get thinking, because I've been thinking it, that's all very well. It's easy to be told that sin no longer has control over me, I just need to believe it. But what about my daily experience? Because my life is all too often riddled with sin. Does the gospel really cleanse me from, from that? Because because very often during the day I just don't see any progress in dealing with those sins that seem to trip me up continually. There is only one answer. There is only one answer. Live under the controlling influence of the Spirit. And in complete dependency on Him. Paul says that when we do this, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And you live like this by continually crying out to him for his power to enable you to obey his will through prayer. See, if you're not asking, how can you receive? So ask. But if you're prayerfully, if you're sincerely, 
wanting to address the sin within your life, you can be sure that the Holy Spirit will work in you and through you to help you. As Philippians 1 verse 6 promises, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit will not abandon you. He will work within you and He will finish the work that He has begun. Now, I don't completely understand how the Holy Spirit works within us. He is a mystery in the sense that we cannot fully comprehend or explain Him. We simply accept the testimony of Scripture that He dwells inside of us, transforming us, making us more and more like Jesus. But also we feel His presence. We feel His gentle direction. We hear His voice speaking to us. He is the one who convicts. He is the one who convinces. He makes us aware even of those subtle sins within our lives. He works in ways that we sometimes are very conscious of, but very often He is at work in ways that we are not even aware of. Right now, God, by His Spirit, is working in your lives. Sense that we feel Him. See, even if you don't, He's working. He's working through situations, through others, through people, through His just His divine will and purpose. But actually, we cannot make one inch of spiritual progress without His enabling power. And we need to cultivate lives that, where the Holy Spirit is welcomed in, which means creating the right atmosphere. For spiritual fruit to grow, to, to be with those habits of, of sin, those sinful habits, we need to be in a climate that is rich and abundant with the Spirit and the Word and prayer. This is a person who walks in the Spirit, who keeps in step with the Spirit, who does not go ahead of him or lie behind him, but is also a person who pulls out the weeds of sin and pride from their life so the seed of the Word of God can take root so that they can produce much fruit, abundant fruit. R.T. Kendall tells a story in one of his books about a couple who went as missionaries to Israel and they were, they were placed in a home near Jerusalem. A few weeks after they moved in there, they noticed that a dove had come to rest in the east of that home. And they were so excited because they felt it was the seed of God for their being there. But they noticed that every time that they slammed the door or that they shouted at each other with an argument, the, the dove would just fly away. So one day they said to each other, either the dove adjusts to us or we adjust to the dove. They both want the dove to stay, so they had a choice to make, so they changed their life. Just having a bird living nearby made them think before they raised their voice in anger. The Holy Spirit is a thousand times more sensitive than a dove. See, if you're to adjust to the gentle, heavenly dove, it means controlling your spirit, restraining your words, sorting out your wrong attitudes, being sure there is no bitterness, and that you have totally forgiven those who have hurt you. When the Holy Spirit is on grief in you, you will have the presence of His mind, His self-control, all of the fruit of the Spirit to remind that He is not grieved by you. But the Spirit remains on you. He will make all the difference to your life. To enjoy effective prayer, reading of 
the Bible, the fruits of the Spirit, you need to be in on good terms with the Holy Spirit. He is the one who illuminates God's words. He opens up your spiritual eyes to see the truth that lies within the pages of Scripture. He opens up your mind to receive the revealing and sometimes the secret will of God. He is the one who will work within you. We need Him. You and I cannot get away with unholy living and then expect to enjoy intimate fellowship with our Heavenly Father. You must respect the Holy Spirit in your public and your private life, day and night. And the way that you respect Him is by avoiding anything that might believe Him. So that you will hear Him speak through the Bible and directly to you. And with His strength, you can develop a spirit given repulsion for sin. And you can be set free and you can flee from every hint of it. And spiritual fruit may be cultivated within your life. So live by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Paul said, live by the Spirit. Keep in step. Keep in step. Keep in step with the Spirit. Knowing that your sinful nature has been put to death, it has been defeated by God's son Jesus on the cross. That is right. It's been done. It's been sorted. As we close, finish this service today, I want to ask for God's Spirit to come and just to apply Christ's victory to your life right now. You're struggling with something, struggling perhaps with a habitual sin, you're struggling maybe with pride, you're struggling with situations that just can't seem to break, get the breakthrough in. But for a moment, God's Spirit will come to apply before Christ's victory, that you may be able to start winning battle after battle over your defeated sinful nature. This is the